This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Yesterday at City Council, there was a controversial decision that was made by City Councilors. I think it was a six to three vote that okayed the demolition of a number of old buildings down by Gore Park. Now, it's not the first time. These are old buildings that had apparently fallen into some disrepair. Whether they were salvageable, that was a point of discussion and debate. But this is certainly not the first time in the city of Hamilton that we have had discussion about the demolition or preservation of a historic or old enough to possibly be historic building. And the discussion always comes back to uh, architecture and history and value from our past and all these kind of things. Well, joining me to talk about this and to try and break down what was going on and what should be going on, Diane Dent is the president of the Heritage Hamilton Foundation. She joins me now. Diane, thanks for doing this tonight. You're welcome. Thank you for spreading the news. Well, I'm just guessing, Diane, I haven't talked to you beforehand about this, but I'm just guessing that you might be a little miffed about this decision yesterday. Uh, I would say we're shocked. Why? Why? Because... First of all, you mentioned in the preamble that the buildings might be falling down. If you check with City Hall, they have a report from a heritage engineering company called Tacoma. They're in Guelph, and they have a report that say the buildings are stable. The owner of the building had a report done. Whether it was from a heritage engineer, we don't know, but that report has not been made public. The one from Tacoma in Guelph, recommended by the city that they get a report, is stamped with that engineering company. Um, Brenda Johnson, the councillor, asked why there was a second engineering report done, and it was replied by the planning department that it was done because the owners of the building want to demolish, so they had to go to a conservation review board hearing, and in order, I presume, to be fully up-to-date on what's going on with the buildings, the city decided they needed an engineering report from a a heritage engineer that was stamped and that was um, credible. One of the architects who has been working with the owner of the building, I understand, described this whole situation, and this is his words, as a, quote, complex heritage, political, and economic problem. Would you agree with that? Whether you agree with his position on whether it should be staying up or being knocked down, would you agree with those words that it's a complex heritage, political, and economic problem? All right. Um, It depends from how you look at it. It's just like um, one side says it's falling down, the other side says it's stable. So you have an architect who's hired by an owner. Um, It's like business. Do you do what the owner wants, or do you try to convince them to do what is the correct thing to do? So from my personal opinion, I would say that we need another architect, and we have one certainly on the Friends of the Gore, who would um, have other comments to say. We have Rob Zeidler, who has um, restored the cotton factory. Of course, there were problems. There are ways to restore old buildings, and they've done it all over the world, including every, every place in the, city of, sorry, the, the cities of Ontario. So it's, it's the point of view. Now, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not asking you to agree with his position on the demolition. I know you don't. I guess I'm coming to the word uh, about the complexity. Do you see this as a simple thing that's going on in the city, or do you see that it is a complex decision that has to be made and these things become very complex issues? No, I said that it is complex, but it's very solvable. For instance, um, uh, all the members, or some members of the Municipal Heritage Committee reported demo. Um, have requested demolition. Have they talked to other architects and other builders and other owners who would disagree with the uh, current method of looking at that project? Yes, it's complicated. Yes, it's complex. Is it doable? Yes, it is. 
we do have a, a Ontario Heritage Act. We do have heritage um, conserva- uh, conservation districts, which which could be complex, but they're doable. This is 2017. This is our sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary. Don't you think we could be making a little bit more effort into saying just um, demolish them? Now, if you look at the records of the people who voted, there were at least three councillors who said they didn't like the look of what was being the replacement. And we're shocked that they didn't ask for other opinions from other architects or other builders. We have been asked, um, which is what happened with Sandyford Place and the Lister, um, were there other people that are interested? And yes, there is a consortium of at least four to six people who would be interested in purchasing those buildings. Do you know how much they sold for? Five buildings sold for $400,000. That is not a lot of money. I was, you know, I was going to get to that because, and we'll jump to it right now because you brought it up. Because this, this to me, Diane, seems to be the, the, what comes down to the crux of this discussion a lot of the time when you're talking to people who want to preserve heritage buildings and those who want to move along and knock them down and do something else with them is that very often, it seems, there are people who want to preserve these buildings but don't necessarily want to put the money forward or buy them and do the work themselves. They want to make sure it happens, but they're not going to put their money where their mouth is. You're saying in this case that was that was not the case. I agree. Now, look at the examples in the city. Sandyford Place, Heritage Hamilton Foundation was going to purchase it. The owners, Finocchio and Capito, said, oh, Heritage Hamilton Foundation, it's my understanding, said they would never have the money. So the founder of Heritage uh, uh, Hamilton Foundation, Grant Head, went to the spectator with a copy of the check. And lo and behold, because the owners of Sandyford said, well, if they've got the money, we'll sell it, they had to sell it. Now, the city decided um, they, they didn't let Heritage Hamilton Foundation buy Sandyford. The city bought it, restored it, and then, then sold it. The same thing for the Lister. Now, unfortunately, the Lister, the city did pay a little bit too much money for it. But um, do you know how that was saved? It was because the Minister of Culture, when she found out it was going to be demolished, that we went to speak with her, and she formed what's called a uh, provincial task force. That provincial task force, through the municipal um, government, had people on the Save It side and the demolished side, and they got together, and they decided it was worth saving. That's the Lister building. Look at it. Should, so, should though, Diane, should people, should it be a rule? And you're, I mean, I know your background. You're a heritage building supporter. But should it be a rule or a policy that if you are going to demand that a building be preserved, or some group is, that they be willing to put up their money to do that rather than just demanding someone else do that? Well, let's say, well we don't think the owner will sell them. We well, okay, and that's that's a different issue. But I'm just and and if they won't sell, that that clearly is a different issue. But at the very least, we've heard, for example, about the Westdale Theater. Now, I understand there may be someone interested, but if we are saying we want to preserve the Westdale Theater, but there's no one who will buy the Westdale Theater, should the people who own the Westdale Theater still be required to keep it as a heritage building, or should they say if we can't find a buyer, you're on your own to do what you like? Well, you know, I suppose that. It's a point of view. In 1975, the provincial government proclaimed the Ontario Heritage Act. It was it wasn't that strong then. There's been a an amendment done by Madeline Mayer, who is Minister of Culture. So to answer, I would say the government first of all has to have a very strong program that um, encourages owners. It also finds owners if they leave the buildings vacant, and they supply some money. The provincial government, the federal government have all said they will supply money, including the provincial, the municipal government that would give the current owners of the Gore Building $1.1 million. The province of the Fed said they would also pay as well. But the bottom line is, if I own a heritage building, and I own it for more than 10 years, and I let it decay, it's called demolition by neglect. That's a problem. The 
the mayor of Toronto, um, Tory, as of yesterday, said that if anyone owns a vacant building in Toronto and doesn't pay the taxes and has had it for several years, he's going to say you have to pay taxes as if it was fully occupied if you're having all the vacant buildings downtown and it's going to be the same for parking lots. So there has to be a law in place by the provincial, um, municipal, and federal government to help with heritage and to help owners who keep buildings uh, vacant or parking lots because the city's losing incredible taxation. Diane, one of the proposals that was made, and I understand it was partially accepted with this meeting yesterday, and again, I'm looking at this more broadly, but this is a perfect example with the Gore buildings. One of the proposals that was made was they would preserve the facade and build behind it, but from looking from the street, you would see the original redone, renovated facade. Some, that, that, I understand, partially was accepted, but there were a number of people who were, again, within the heritage community who said, no, that's not nearly good enough. Why would that not be good enough? Because it's going to be an apartment, and unless you're in the building, you're never going to know what the original inside looked like. As long as it looks like the building to the public, why, why would that not be acceptable? Well, I think there are two, two points to that. One is the apartments that they're planning to put in there are not going to make the money that they think they are. Two is facadism for heritage advocates is not the answer. However, um, there is a facade that's going up next to the Lister on James Street, but it was um, unbuilt, and it was each stone was going to be numbered and put back into place. I would say that facadism currently is not the answer because there are architects and builders and um, people who read out in buildings on uh, the Friends of the Gore who have, I would say, better... Uh, projects, um, which was, would not just be saved thought. Just before we let you go, because we only have about a minute left here, we do. Um, what? Tell me, from, we all have our interpretation of what these heritage buildings or what the old architecture in a city brings as far as value to the city. Why is it so, why is it so important to you? What, what do these buildings, when they're preserved, when they're rebuilt, what do they do for the city that losing them costs us? All right, tell, tell me where people want to go in other cities. Do people want to go to um, Montreal, to, to France, to uh, the historic properties in Halifax? Yes, they do. Do people now come to James Street North because they're um, converting the empty buildings into neat places? Yes, they do. But the main reason for Gore Park is if you look back to the 1800s when it was, uh, the buildings were built, it's unique. Hamilton is not Toronto. It's not Montreal. But there are some things that it has that Oakville and Burlington and Mississauga do not have, which is a fabulous downtown that somebody or all of us have not preserved. So look at the buildings of, of Gore Park and look at the Gore Park brochure that Heritage Hamilton Foundation did in 1997. It shows the dates of the buildings. It shows the, um, the facades of the building. And perhaps we could say that the beginning of the end for certain part of Gore Park was when the city allowed the demolition of the Burke's building. And I'm told, because I didn't live here then, that the theory was, oh, it was falling down. Well, anybody can get someone to tell you it's falling down. But if you get an archit- um, a heritage engineer, he will give an honest report. So to answer your uh, question a little more succinctly, travel this city, particularly in the core, and see what buildings have been saved and why people flock to them. The Pickett Building, the Sunlight, the Bank of Montreal, the Unified Family Court, the Safina Courthouse, the Landed Bank, James Street North. That's what people are looking at. They're not looking at towers in glass that they can go anywhere and see, where is to make your city unique, walkable, livable, attractive. It's the heritage. 
Diane Dent, president of the Heritage Hamilton Foundation. I really appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. And listen, let me know where I can reach you because I'll bring you some copies of the Gore Park brochure uh, bulletin with the um, fountain, which was also something that we did, and the fountain could have gone as well. Diane, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good night. I am... uh, I am... Here's my thing on the whole heritage thing, quite simply. And, and Diane said in this particular case, this happened. I will listen to any heritage group who is lobbying to protect a building as long as they are willing to put up money as opposed to just standing back and saying, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't touch that. If you are a heritage group or a person who is involved in heritage and you say, We really believe in this building, and we believe so strongly that we are going to gather funds, we're going to get a group together, and we are going to buy this thing and fix it ourselves or make it happen. I will listen to you all day long. And she says that happened in this case. It didn't sell, but they were willing. They had a group who was willing to do it. To me, that's same thing. If you're willing to put up the money, if you're willing to do it, fine. But if you are just going to stand back and say, you can't, th-, this is why we had this discussion several weeks ago about the Westdale Theater when there was nobody at that time who was looking to buy it. Don't just stand back and say, that has to be deemed heritage because then you're handcuffing the owner. Nothing can be done to fix it. Nothing can be done to change it. Nothing can be done to change the zoning or anything else to make a new, pr- you have handcuffed the person there. If you want to put up your money, I will listen. If you're not willing to put up your money, I don't have any time to listen to you. Luke, you want to jump in on this. I don't understand people's fascination or heritage group's fascination with the buildings around Gore Park. I don't see what is so great about them because, to be honest with you, they look bad from street level. And that's not entirely the buildings. It's it's partly the tenants that are the, the shops that are in these buildings. But what are we trying to save? Because... I, I would hope it's not the shops because the shops are part of why there's a bad view of Hamilton's downtown because a lot of them are. No, I think what you're lower. trying to do, you've got the new, as she referred to at the end, you've got the new fountain, the new old fountain, sure. right? And so you, you're trying to recapture some of Hamilton's glory years of downtown. Now, of course, it's never going to be the way it was. We now have cars. We're soon going to have an LRT. We have all these other things. Well, maybe. Um, we have all these other things. It's not going to be the same, but there is a view that if we have nicer architecture, then that will make our downtown right. more appealing. So why can't we make it new and it be nice? That's that's what I don't understand. Like the buildings are still going to be there and even I'm I'm supporting updating the facades. Like when you look at the one side of Gore Park where the I think it's a Scotiabank is, the bank, that's a really nice looking building. But it's certainly not the way it used to look. And and I understand wanting to save stuff for historical purposes, but just saying it's old, we should save it, does not really work I, I, for me. I, I'm in agreement with you. We didn't have time to go into why this particular facade, but we, we get to these a lot in the city. I mean, we went through it for a long time with the Lister sure. Block. Um, and look, the Lister Block turned into be a very lovely building. It really yep. did. It was a huge fight. But again, because we got to go to break, I come back to my point. If you are going to be a heritage supporter, a building supporter, someone lobbying for heritage structures to be redone and so that the owners can't do something else with it that they believe might be better financially or more viable, of course you disagree on that, but if you want to stay there, stand there and say, you must preserve this, you must rebuild this as it was, you must revitalize it. I will only give you the time of day if you're willing to put your money into that to make that happen. If you're not, as far as I'm concerned, you don't have a say. You can't walk into a restaurant and say, I demand that you change your menu because it's terrible if you're not going to buy anything. But if you walk in there and you eat my meal or you eat at that restaurant and I'm the chef and you eat my meal, you then to me have a right to comment on my food. You have, by putting your money down, you have earned the right to have a comment. It's exactly the same to me as voting. If you don't vote, you don't get a right to have a say on what's going right or what's going wrong. A vote is a payment of sorts. So in this case, Diane says there was money that was going to, so that's fine. If that's the case, then I absolutely will listen. 
But if there's a case where there's nobody who's willing to put up the money and they just want someone else to fork out, sorry, tune you out. And that's the way it is with all heritage stuff. Honestly, it really is. And a bunch of other places too. If you're not willing to put your money where your mouth is, you don't get a say. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We're going to talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame in just a second. Let me bring Bubba O'Neill from CHCH into the show. Bubba, how are you tonight? Not bad there, uh, my man. How are you doing? I am good. Listen, uh, before we get to that, around the council table today at Hamilton City Hall, Councillor Matt Green raised the issue that I know has been weighing on Ticat fans for so long now, Bubba. It is the problem of bringing casseroles into Tim Horton's field. I'm not making this up. Um, a tweet today from reporter Samantha Craig said, this is a quote, he's heard of people who can't bring casseroles into the stadium without encountering a licensing issue. Now, I know this has been the thing that has been driving Ticat fans. Forget the winning and the losing. Forget the stadium situation. It's the lack of a good casserole in the stands. We know, Bubba, that there is nothing Ticat fans are known for more than their deep, unwavering love of a good casserole at the game. What is your favorite flavor of casserole to eat while you're watching the Thai Cats? Well, I mean, I'm I'm more of a goulash guy. <laughs> Who has ever Are you kidding me? Are you, like who's doing this? I'm not what making this up. This is this casseroles, beef casseroles. What, what what's going on here? I have never in my life seen someone walking to the football stadium with a foam finger on one hand and a glass Pyrex casserole dish in the other, <laughs> saying, "At least I got my food." Like, Who what? brings a casserole to a football game? I don't know. I mean, do people bring lasagna? Like, Apparently what, I, so. I, I, what's going Like, And why is this a big deal? Uh, why is this being discussed? I, I, saw this, I saw this tweet come out today, and I thought it must have been a typo because, <laughs> again, uh, two words that I never thought I would utter in the same sentence are <laughs> casserole and football. And, and it's not even football season. It, it took this long to get to to be discussed. Well, it was part long? of the it was part of the debate about the new soccer bubble on top of the stadium, but somehow it morphed into a discussion about uh, you know food in the stadium. Uh, Molly Hayes, by the way, from the Spectator, uh, in an act of sheer brilliance, launched a Twitter poll immediately upon he- seeing this tweet. Uh, we're now up to two hundred and twenty eight votes. Uh, oh the the question is: Have you ever tried to smuggle a casserole into a sports stadium? Eight percent say yes, seventy two percent say no, and twenty percent say yes more than once. Um, I would answer: Does in your pants count? But that's you know that's uh, <laughs> that's smuggling. That is. Uh, so there you go. There, there's your topic. I hope you're going to lead the sports tonight with the great casserole gate. No, I want to. I want to extend the voting. I, I want more votes. Uh, Let's get to the bottom of this. Absolutely. We we and and I need to know. Um, there's uh, does lasagna count as a casserole? Because if it does, then I could say yes. I have actually eaten a casserole while watching football before. The only thing I think against that is that I, I think casserole is. By pure definition, is just more of a, a throwing together of things. Where I believe there is some organization. The tuna bake. Together. Yeah, yeah, the like tuna it, bake. You know, it, it, when you actually put together a lasagna, there's actually a construction to it, as opposed to just throwing everything <laughs> in a casserole and, and baking it. I can tell you that I once recently saw something online of the photos from some 1970s cooking book with a bunch of 1970s-era casseroles. Let me just tell you, they involved a lot of spam, a lot of half wieners cut in half, and some jello. Uh, I, I don't know that that would work for a football food. Cass- I've always been mystified by the spam, and I know it's a favorite of many, but I, I, I don't get it. Like, what is it? Well, it's it's canned ham and seasoned canned ham. And I, and, and, and I believe it was, you know, usable in space and it was certainly used for GIs because in the in the war the you know that was how they got their one of the one of the foods they ate why not just have a ham Make oh well uh, I know but you can't always bring a ham back in a can Bubba it's not as convenient to just carry a hawk of ham you got to have a can of ham <laughs> I think at the end of the day it's low-end ham well you know, some people love it. Fried Spam, I understand, in some places is still a delicacy. Uh, let us move along before we get completely wrapped up in the casserole story today. Uh, there was one other piece of news, that, well, two others, actually, that happened today, uh, believe it or not. Um, one of them was the Hall of Fame voting. Uh, Tim Raines, Jeff Bagwell, and Yvonne Rodriguez, Pudge Rodriguez, catcher, got in. Tim Raines, 
uh, great. I, I don't think anyone, especially north of the border, I don't think anyone opposes Tim Raines. He was a fantastic Montreal Expo. He's really now the last... Well, Vladimir Guerrero could get in which someday, which would be the last one. But Tim Raines may be the last great Montreal Expo piece. But let me switch to the other side for a second, because Tim Raines is an easy discussion. We all love him. We're all glad he's in, I think. Sure. Jeff Bagwell, Yvonne Rodriguez, both guys who never were busted for taking stuff, but were always rumored and linked and tied to the steroid era by by rumor, if nothing else, an innuendo and suggestion. And I'm wondering if their getting voted in is going to is going to throw open the door to more and more of the guys who become more and more established as guys who used it during those days. Is this going to open the door down the road for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and other guys who did use it? Well, I don't know if it opens the door. I think the door's already opened. And, and I'll be honest with you, I think there's been a... I think the narrowing down of the voting, um, you know, from 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 the amount of voters that are there, they cut that down about two or three years ago. I think you're also getting a younger absolutely demographic of voters that are, you know, official old voters for the Baseball Writers Association of America uh, that do the, you know, that to, to see if you get the required seventy five percent. But here, here's my thing. I mean, first of all. Rumors and innuendos. I I can't I can't use that. And you know. And of course, there's the head test of like, oh, this is what his head looked like in 1990, and this is what his head looked like in 2000. Yeah, it grew four four you cap know, sizes. Well, last time I checked, everyone's head grows over the years, and ears grow, and noses grow, and so I. I and I'm not a scientist, okay? So uh, I can only go by what I saw. And I know that Ivan Rodriguez, along with Mike Piazza, were, the, was, were among, and I guess you could join Johnny Bench, who I never really saw play, as the greatest offensive catchers of their era. Um, so to me, he was great. Um, and, and you know what? My eye I test is, you know, when you watch these guys play at their, during their decade or their era, you know, at any time of watching them, were they among the greatest players of the game? And I think everyone that got in today and including some that are just on the line, were. So I'm okay with this. And if there were innuendos of steroids, I'm okay with this. Baseball tur- This is baseball's fault. Baseball turned a blind eye to what was going on. So now 20 years or 20, some 25 years later, we've got some of these reporters that sort of have a, uh, I don't know, something, I don't know if there's a grudge against some of these guys, but all I know is, you know, these guys that we're talking about, and I know Barry Bonds and Roger Clements, I'm going to throw them right in the same category, in my opinion. It's not only my opinion. They were never caught. They were the greatest players, especially those two, were the greatest players I've ever seen play the game. So I'm putting them in, in the Hall of Fame. See, I, I, it's very difficult because these guys who went in today, again, there was nothing, as far as I know, there was nothing that directly tied them. It was, again, innuendo. And, and I mean, Pudge Rodriguez, as an example, when the steroid testing started, his body changed dramatically. When the testing really started, he shrunk. Wait, wait, hold on, can I stop you right there? Yep. I, I think we also have to respect that at that time of when these guys were playing, the training habits of a lot of players, and I could put, I could use many other sports, golf, hockey, football, basketball, the training habits at that time of, of, of sports, and then I'm going to use all sports, were training. So, yes, there was a bigger commitment to going in the locker room. There was a bigger commitment to diet, and I think that's why we saw the change in body styles for many of these players. But I'm looking, but, I, but you're absolutely right. I'm going the other way though, because when the when the testing really started, Pudge Rodriguez came back one season and he was about twenty five or thirty pounds lighter than he had been all through his glory years. And I went, wait a second, what? And, and so, and again, just the eye test. I said, I, I'm that makes me incredibly suspicious. And his name had always been bandied around. And then I said, okay, you know what? I so I have a t- I admit I have a tough time being fully on board with these two guys going in. I, there was no reason why they shouldn't, technically. Right. Technically, there's no reason they shouldn't. I just, I find it hard to feel terribly excited about it because I have these suspicions that they were involved. Were these guys not spectacular? You, you, they I, were. You're, and you're, you're even a bigger baseball fan They were. They were fantastic. Uh, Pudge Rodriguez, uh, with Johnny Bench, is probably the best defensive catcher of all time. 
and, and I think to me that's all I need because as far as I'm concerned, and we have seen over the last decade especially, uh, people who have tested positive or people that have been caught using steroids or whatever the case was, none of the people that we're talking about have ever tested positive for steroids. And, I mean, you can't convict someone for murder by, by the eye test. You can't convict someone for murder by, by rumors and innuendo. You need proof. And none of these guys ever tested positive. And if they did, and baseball knows about it, well, they're hiding something. And what they did hide was whatever was going on at the time, managers knew what was going on, players knew what was going on, and it was assumed. So I will fall into the same category and just say, you know what, these guys were never caught, and I enjoyed the way those guys played. They were competitors. They were hitting set records. And, again, I'll use Bonds and Clements as the best two players I've ever seen in my life. Well, and I agree with you 100% on, on one of the points, and that is that this is baseball's fault. Because you go back really to the summer of 1998, which was the summer of Maguire and Sosa, and in to some degree Griffey. Everyone forgets that Ken Griffey was in that mix for a while until he fell off the pace. But um, those guys... I don't know if they saved baseball, but man, they certainly brought lots of. Hey, they did save baseball. Uh, well, you, you can make that argument, but even if you even if you don't want to go that far, they brought so many people to watch those games and and brought so many new fans to the game just because of that excitement. That you're right, baseball absolutely. Even whatever it knew, it said, uh, don't tell me, I don't want to know, la, 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 plug in my ears, I don't want to know because these guys are doing great things for us, and it carried on from there, and and then. As you know, remember the commercial with Tom Glavin and, and Greg Maddox and John Smoltz that they put out around that time? Yeah, about digging the long ball. Chicks dig the long ball. We're, we're now going to play up all the muscular, over-muscular guys who are now hitting the ball 7,000 miles. And no one's going to say, wait a second, why does Mark McGuire look like this when he used to look like that? There's only so much you can do in the gym, honestly. Let's be honest here. And that's that he, if you can go back and look at the pictures of Mark McGuire from that summer and the summer after Bubba, holy moly, his uniform was hanging on for dear life. It was about to explode every single game. His, and, and, but I will also, you can't, again, I, I, I still have to remind you of the change in attitude of players and being fit. And I, and I think that contributed. Um, I do agree with what you're saying. I mean, yeah, there's I, I, no doubt. You, you could find, I mean, look at Mark McGuire, great example there. Because he's maybe the one guy that, you know, uh, I guess a reporter saw something, uh, Diander Strone, I believe, I believe it was, in his locker. Um, Andro, yep. Yeah, Andro, and, and, and I mean, it was sort of just brushed off and really wasn't illegal. It wasn't on you know, any illegal substance. But again, that's, that's not the fault, in my opinion, of anyone. This is what guys were doing. The same way people take protein shakes nowadays, the, the people, people were doing whatever it took to be in shape, to to uh, heal your body and work out as much as you can. So I can't I can't go there, Scott. I really can't. All right. So what about the future, though? Because when you start getting into the guys, there is a guy like Alex Rodriguez, let's say, who has been caught, and certainly is one of the handful of very best players that baseball has ever had. Does he fall out of the mix, or or do we reach a point now with the Hall of Fame when we should simply maybe rewrite? the plaques and put something on there that says, and through his career, he either tested positive, Manny Ramirez, same thing, or was dogged by suspicions or do- whatever. Is Do we just say, you know, it's too complicated now for reporters and writers to have to wade through the morality and the suspicions and everything else. Let's put them all in, but just put an asterisk or put a little note on their plaque. I mean, I don't know if it, I mean, I think you're either you're in, you're out, right? I mean, guys that got caught straight up, Maybe those are the guys that don't get in. Again, if you got caught straight up, you're done. Um, so that makes it really tough for A-Rod. We'll always know what he did. One of the most spectacular players we've ever seen. We've never seen a second baseman play the way he did, or a shortstop, sorry, play the way he did when he was with the Mariners. An unbelievable talent. Now, this he can hang on his own head because he was caught once and twice. So if... A-Rod doesn't get into the Hall of Fame. He has no one to blame but himself. But again, I will maintain, if you were never caught, and there's nothing more than rumors and innuendo and belief and eye tests, not good enough for me. So, uh, Sammy Sosa, 
this is up to, I guess, the individual that's voting at this point there, Scott, because you're right. At some point, we're now, we've now moved into the era. We've actually, we've already moved, moved into the era of players that, uh, were under some suspicion. Yeah, no, we, we, it, it absolutely is. And you know, the good thing for A-Rod is that he could actually buy his own Hall of Fame if he wants to with the money he made. Um, Bubba, we are out of time, unfortunately. Listen, uh, people can tune in tonight at 11 to see all the stuff from the Hall of Fame, I'm sure, on CHCH with you. Appreciate you yeah. taking the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the kitchen and make a casserole. <laughs> make it a good one and have enough to take next summer to the football game. Yes, sir. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Open the paper today to see a story about Ontario teachers. Not necessarily a shock to open the paper and find a story about Ontario teachers wanting something. But they do. They want something. Now, thankfully, we're not in contract negotiations right now, or what they would be wanting is more money or probably threatening to strike. And for the record, it's been a while since we've talked about teachers on this show, so let me just say, when I say teachers, I mean primarily the teachers union. I, 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 I have a lot of friends who are teachers. I know a lot of teachers. My kids have gone through, we've had great teachers. I don't think that by and large, it's the teachers that are the problem here. It is the people who represent the teachers, but you may agree. You may disagree. Anyway, back to the story. Apparently the head of Ontario's elementary teachers union, not apparently he did say this. He says that violent incidents, aggressive behavior, bullying, those kind of things are on the rise in elementary schools across this province. And therefore the province must improve resources available to students. The province has got to find some more dough to help the teachers with these problems because you've got kids who are in the schools who are creating issues. Now, Let's go back to the very beginning of this for a second. I don't think anybody who is listening, who has ever had a kid in school, or frankly, who even hasn't had a kid in school, is going to disagree with the concept that it is not a good thing to have bullying or aggressive behavior in school. I don't think anyone is going to argue for that. If you are, if you are a person who will argue in favor of bullying, well, you're the only one out there and you may want to rethink your position. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. Even if you're the bully, as time goes by, it always comes back on you. Nobody's arguing for bullying. No one's arguing in favor of kids getting beat up or getting teased. These are difficult things, especially in a modern world where it's not just at school anymore. Because you can have, there was a time when you could be bullied at school, but you go home and you escape from this. Now with social media and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the rest, if you're being bullied, this is why, this is part of the reason. Maybe, I don't know if it's a big part, but this is part of the reason, I believe, why we have kids who, some of them who are committing suicide, who are facing depression, who are doing other things related to the bullying. You can now, you can never escape from it. Once upon a time, you could. You may have to face it the next day back at school, but while you were home, you were safe. Now you're not safe. Ever, because it's always out there with social media. Anyway, so no one's going to argue that bullying or aggressive behavior or people, dis- kids disrupting lessons, that those are good things. No one is going to argue for that. But a couple questions. First of all, why is this happening? Why? Because I can tell you that once upon a time, and again, maybe I'm showing my age. And Luke, I may ask you because you're a little younger than me. I may ask you to jump in on this one for just a second, just to give me an opinion from someone a little younger so we go cross-generational here. But back when I was in high school, which was not in the Paleozoic era, by the way, I know you're saying almost, it's not, it's not that long ago. If I did something that disrupted the lesson, that caused a problem, that was aggressive towards another student, I would be gone from the classroom. I'd be sent to the principal's office and there'd be no questioning it on my part. I would be gone. And why would that work? Well, I would argue that it would work because I knew that not only was I in trouble at school, but when I got home and I had to tell mom and dad about this, there was going to be trouble. Now, you were you graduated more recently than I. What would have happened if someone even as recently as you graduated from school and got in trouble in the classroom? Would they have would there have been consequences? Yes, the exact same thing that you said. Okay. So, we're not that far off. 
But somehow, it seems to me that at least some kids, and again, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm being old man here, maybe I'm being grumpy old man, but it seems some kids don't have that fear anymore of what happens at home. And why is that? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. One of them, one of them is that we know that at times now, if you're, if a kid gets in trouble, he doesn't go home in fear of mom and dad. He knows that mom and dad are going to march down to the school and chew out the teacher for picking on their kid. We know that's the case. Not everybody, not everybody, but we know that's sometimes going to happen. Well, it's, it's difficult at the best of times. If you have a kid who has no fear of the consequence, it's difficult to correct any behavior. It's a very bad parallel. I'm going to draw here in a second because I'm not comparing the two things, but when you talk about terrorists, it's very hard to prosecute or to cause great fear in the heart of a terrorist if he's already willing to blow himself up. If you aren't afraid of the consequence that is apparent is available to be offered, well, how do you correct the behavior? If a guy is going to strap a vest of dynamite to his body and you say, I'm going to arrest you, what's he afraid of? The consequence is not concerning to him. Well, in a similar vein, I know it's not the same thing, but in a similar vein, if you're not afraid of the consequence in school, why would you stop? But we have in so many ways, for better or for worse, we have removed the tools that a parent or a teacher would have to correct this kind of behavior. Because we know teachers can't do much now. Parents can't or won't do much. So we have kids, we have some kids, some kids, I'm not putting it across the board. We have some kids who will act out with impunity because what's going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? Not going to get kicked out of school. We, 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 I don't even know if in this day and age, if we can expel kids from school, maybe we still can, but if we can't fail them. You're not allowed to fail a kid in class. So why, why would we suddenly say, well, it's okay to expel them? Maybe we can, I don't know, but there's very little fear from anything in school. So how are you going to correct their behavior for the ones who want to misbehave? But let me, let me say one other thing though, because this is the thing that, that really got me when I read this piece today. The person who was speaking about this, by the way, was Sam Hammond, who's the head of the Ontario Elementary Teachers Union. Uh, Pardon me, the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario is the proper name. You may remember Sam Hammond from threatened strikes gone by or strikes. Sam Hammond is the guy who's always up at the front, who is telling about how well, we're going to walk out. How the teachers have this demand and that demand. Sam Hammond is the guy who, at the, as the head of the teachers' union, no arguing, has done a terrific job for the members of the union. He's got them. Uh, they are, Ontario teachers are, I believe, the highest paid in Canada or very close to it. They are exceedingly well compensated for their work. They do a good job, but the, most of them. But they are exceedingly well paid for their work. But here's the problem. We have a provincial government that last time around, you may remember this, said it, they, their negotiation with the teachers had to be a zero sum agreement. We almost ended up with a, with a strike or a lockout because there was no more money. There is no more money in the province to pay teachers who are already the highest paid teachers in Canada, more cash. We don't have the dough. Taxpayers are tapped out. We're already broke from our electrical bills and our gas bills. We don't have more money for more taxes to give to teachers because teachers are going to hold their services over kids and families' heads and hold them hostage, which is what happens every time. Every time we're going to go on strike, we're going to withhold extracurriculars. You can't do that. I mean, parents have to go to work. What do they do with their kids if there's a lockout or a strike? So the, the, this happens over and over and over again. What it means is... Sam Hammond and his teachers union have squeezed every drop of juice out of the taxpayer. Every single drop has been squeezed out of the taxpayer. And now he's coming back saying, well, it's not for us, but we need more because classrooms are being disrupted. We can't teach properly. Classes are being disrupted. Kids are not learning because things are going on. Either they're being bullied or there's something happening in classrooms and teachers really can't deal with this. So we need more resources for teachers who can help with students who have behavioral issues. 
Here's a quote of his. Increasingly, we are seeing incidents of aggressive, destructive student behavior in classrooms across the province that create serious challenges, Mr. Hammond said at a news conference on Tuesday. This is from the Globe and Mail. When a violent incident happens in a classroom, teaching and important learning opportunities are interrupted. Agreed. 100% agree with him. But when you then turn around after you have bled the government for every drop of blood they have to give to the teachers and say, we need more. Now, it's not this one's not going into our pockets, but we need more to make their jobs easier. Where is that supposed to come from? Where is that money supposed to come from? Honestly, I am so tired of teachers unions asking for more not asking. That's not what they're doing. Demanding more and more and more and more. As far as I'm concerned, what the teachers unions did last time was argue that their job is so difficult that there are so many responsibilities that they have to deal with stuff like this that they should be better compensated. But now that they are being better compensated, he's saying, oh, but we need more help with this. So you've, you, you got your raise on the back of dealing with stuff like this. But now that you've got your raise, you're saying we need other people to deal with stuff like this. No, that's That's what you got paid for. That's what you're being paid for. And I know there are cases where there are unusual incidents where kids have such serious developmental issues or behavioral issues that they pose challenges beyond what a teacher can do. Well, you know what? Perhaps, perhaps when all this negotiation negotiating was going on with the province involved as well, this should have been factored into it. Okay, we can give you this much money, but then you know what? If you're in class, you are going to have to deal with those students because we simply can't pay more to have more people. This is an endless race to the money pit. And we don't have the money, but I just can't believe that a teacher's union is back asking for more dough. Not directly. They're not specifically saying we need deeper pockets or we need more salary. They've already got their lovely payday. They've got their salary already. They got their raises. They got what they wanted. And now that they've got it, they're saying, oh, but part of the job that we're being paid to do, we really can't handle this properly. And they knew this ahead of time. They knew this going in. They've always known this. There have always been kids with problems and and issues in class. And maybe the numbers are going up of kids of issues that are going on. But this should have been thought of, and this should have been part of the negotiation. We need more people in our classrooms who will help our teachers with this. And you know what? That might mean that we can't get quite the raise we want because we need to hire more people to make our livelihood better. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that. Squeeze every drop you can out of the taxpayer and then come back for more under a different headline. One other interesting thing. During the last stoppage, or the last threatened stoppage, the last negotiation, one of the main things that the elementary teachers were asking for, the province wanted the teachers to spend more time outside the classroom at recess and other things looking after students, supervising students. The elementary teachers did not want that. Well, where do you think that a lot of bullying or at least a genesis or the evidences of bullying or aggressive behavior. Where do you think that might happen? On the schoolyard? Maybe. So maybe if teachers were out there, if more teachers were out there, they would notice this stuff and be able to put a stop to it. But that was negotiated out. That was something they demanded not to do, or at least requested not to do. It drives me crazy that we have a union that can't ever, ever, ever seem to get enough out of the taxpayer. And this is what's back. I have full sympathy. I really do have sympathy for the teacher who has a classroom with a behavioral challenge kid who makes it really difficult to teach. I have sympathy for that. I do. And I have great sympathy for the other kids in the room who are trying to learn and who are being distracted. But we don't have money to pay for this. This should have been thought of. This should have been part of the negotiation. This should have been included. So you could say in a zero sum agreement, yeah, you know what? We may not be able to get an increase this time because we have to, as part of our pot, as part of our pie of teaching money, we need to be able to have these people to increase the productivity and the quality and the enjoyment of our job. And so in order, like, 
some places you, when you're negotiating many places, when you're negotiating a union contract, you trade, right? You say, okay, we'll take this. We want to have higher quality of living and a higher quality of life at our job. So we would like an hour lunch break built into our time. Okay. What are you going to give us for that? Well, we'll give you, we'll take 1% off the raise we're asking for, whatever it is. Here, that's not how it works. Here, we're saying, give us everything, and then at an appropriate time, just long enough so people may have forgotten that we went through this whole thing not that long ago, we'll come back and ask for more under a different tent to make sure that now we're now we're trying to squeeze more money from a province that still doesn't have more money, in fact, has less money, is more in financial trouble, and somehow now, now this is suddenly a new problem. This has never happened before. We never had disrupted classes before, right? Well, no, of course we did. It's, it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And maybe that's the whole point of how, how the teachers union wear. Let's just wear them down. We'll get them to the point where they just don't even care anymore. Well, we do care. We care. We've had enough. So here's the suggestion. If you really need to have these more teachers or more people to help with kids with behavioral problems in classes, and I'm not disputing that that's the case. I'm not arguing that point. What you need to do is if you're a teacher, is to tell your teacher's union, tell Sam Hammond and tell the union, we will sacrifice X percent that we got out of our raise to hire more people to do that because there is simply no more money. And if you can't do that, if you're unwilling to do that, then handle it yourself because there isn't money to go and hire more people. There isn't. Everyone else, everyone else in the private sector has to do more with less, has to deal with new challenges, has to do, deal with more challenges, has to do all kinds of stuff that they never used to have to do in the past, but their jobs are more complicated, busier, more pressure. Everyone is dealing with this. Everyone is. So either deal with it, figure out a way, Crack down on discipline in the school, suspend some kids, expel some kids. If a kid is really difficult and he's aggressive in your classroom, send him to the principal's office and have the principal say he's not welcome back here. Figure it out yourself. I'm sorry. We just, we're not social workers at the school. We're teachers. We're educators. He is, he or she is disrupting the class. Thank you. There can't work here. Or offer to surrender a little bit of the increase you've got, a little bit of the very, very lovely pay you get and say, we will give up 2%. Everyone in this, everyone in the province, every teacher will give back 2% of what they got as a raise and we'll hire some more of these people that can move around or 3% or whatever it is. Honestly, it seems like it's, it's on, on, a, on clockwork, like clockwork, we end up talking about teachers and money. Teachers and money, teachers and money. There's always something that we need more money for teachers or for something related to teachers. I love teachers, but you need to shut your union down or at least tell them they are not helping you. They are, they're helping you make money, no doubt about that. But from a public relations, from a public standpoint, from a love of teachers standpoint, your union is doing nothing to make you look good. And you heard this during the last labor negotiations and you're hearing it now. We love teachers but you make it hard sometimes with your leadership to demonstrate that love or to feel that love. Just telling you. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.